Welcome to Rights Up Right Now, a mini episode of the Rights Up podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Kira Allman. On January 24th, the UK Supreme Court ruled in the Miller case, and we've invited Professor Alison Young back to talk about the court's decision and what it means for the UK as it prepares to leave the EU. In our last episode of Rights Up Right Now, we discussed the case Miller and Dos Santos versus Secretary of State for exiting the European Union. The case dealt with the question of who has the authority to trigger Article 50. Is it Parliament or the government? And now we know that the Supreme Court has ruled that the government does not have a prerogative power to trigger Article 50, and an act of Parliament will be required. So thank you very much, Alison, for coming back to discuss the court's decision. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's, it's lovely to have another chat with you about Miller. Okay, first things first, what does the UK Supreme Court decision actually say? Well, the Supreme Court was basically asked two main questions. The first question was, um, does the government have a prerogative power or not? The consequence being that if it didn't have a prerogative power, you need another source of power, and that could only come from an Act of Parliament. And the second question it was asked was, if we do have to have an Act of Parliament, can this just be done by Westminster, or does there need to be some kind of legal role for the devolved bodies? And what we know from the decision is, first question, eight judges said there is no prerogative power, and three said there is, so the majority wins, and that means that there is no prerogative power and you need to have an Act of Parliament. Second question, all 11 said there's no legal need to get the consent of the devolved bodies. You were in London when the decision came down. What was it like? Was this like other significant court decisions you've seen, or was there something unique about this one? I think there was something unique about this. I, I'm not used to that much media coverage of a decision of the Supreme Court. I mean, it was, um, I started off in a television studio, which was a very alien experience for me, and uh, then ended up outside the Supreme Court. And there was just rows and rows of television cameras of, um, you had this kind of almost like, almost global coverage of a decision of a UK Supreme Court, which is, is completely alien. What's been the response to the judgment from academia and from the public based on what you've seen? From what I've seen in the public, I think the main reaction really has been a sort of, it's almost like a damp squid in some senses. It's almost like there was such a lot of anticipation of what it was going and there's lots of discussion about, um, does this mean we're trying to stop Brexit? And I think there's been a, a realisation, I think, from most of the public that this was not what it was about, that it really was about just determining what the law is on a particular issue. And I think the Supreme Court made that very, very clear. So I think in, in some senses, the reaction has been a sort of not really much of a reaction. Um, in academic circles, obviously, we're, we're kind of looking at it not just in the sense of what does this mean just in this particular decision, but more generally, what does this mean about how our constitution works, how what the role of courts are, what the roles of legislators are. And, and actually, that's been interesting. There's been a lot of academic commentary that has been critical of how the majority reached its decision, and obviously some academic commentary backing the decision. So it, it's kind of, we're looking at it more in, in the sense of, what's the strength of your legal reasoning for this outcome? What has the court told us through this decision about how it conceptualizes the relationship between EU and UK law? Do we know more about that now? We do, actually. It's, it's, it's fascinating, and that's one of the reasons why there was the dispute between the 
majority outcome and the minority outcome. So we had lots of discussion about pipelines. And so we thought in the run up to the case, there's all this discussion about this is somehow pipeline through which European Union law flows. And so it's, it's kind of, they're almost like imagining the relationship in two different ways. So the majority is saying, okay, we are here in the UK and over there in Europe, there was this the European Union that was generating laws and rights. And in order to join that, it's almost like we had to build a pipeline to the European Union so that its laws that it makes, the institutions make, can flow through the pipeline and become part of UK law. And what the majority is saying is it's almost like we, we built the pipe and to withdraw from the EU is to kind of like take the pipe away. Whereas the minority is saying, well, it's, it's like a pipe that we built, but actually, you know, we built the pipe, fine, but then these rights come through and it's almost like they've got a tap and they can turn the tap up for more rights to come through or turn it down for less rights to come through. And they, so it's also horrible analogies about taps and switching on and switching off. And is it a source or is it not a source? But for us constitutionals, that's quite interesting because it's essentially recognizing a difference between parliament is sovereign and it decides to join and leave, or parliament is just kind of enacting a piece of legislation that says, whilst we're members of the EU, these rights come through such that if we leave, well, it's not we've not done anything to our domestic law. It's just that we're not members of the EU anymore. So we've not changed law. So it's horrible technical arguments about the ins and outs of the relationship turning on. Is it a source or is it just little things that come through the pipeline? I think the real difference is the majority is saying look, this was a fundamental constitutional change. And because it was a fundamental constitutional change, you need parliament. Whereas the minority is saying, no, it's just something flows through a pipe or doesn't, so you don't need Parliament. Okay, so what has this decision taught us about the way that the sovereignty of the people interacts with parliamentary sovereignty? I think what it really does is reinforces what we were discussing earlier, that um, when you're looking about the UK constitution, you have to think about law and politics almost as kind of distinct entities that kind of interrelate with each other but which are enforced differently. So as far as the court is concerned there's no sort of the sovereignty of the people is the political justification for why we have parliament, it, it builds into why we have democracy but as far as the court is concerned it's filtered through parliament's actions and acts of parliament so it goes away and says well what does the law say what does legislation say and that's why you have these strong statements about the sovereignty of parliament because in our constitution the parliament is the institution that has sovereignty but they're also very clear in the judgment to say that doesn't mean to say that the referendum was unimportant or that it was just kind of irrelevant in some sense. They say it's very politically important. It has huge political significance that this referendum was taken. It's just as if the courts are saying, well, politically, the people are sovereign. Parliamentarians listen to the people. They're there because the people voted for them. But legally, parliament is a sovereign institution in our constitution. So it, it's all about recognizing the people are very important, but it's through the political accountability, not through how we go away and interpret law. So what can we expect now with regard to the process of exiting the EU? Is this going to be a slow process now that an act of parliament is required? I don't think so. I, I think the, we, the reason we can see that is because yesterday we had the bill 
Um, it's very short. You can go online and see it, but it's, it's a very, very short piece of legislation. I, I don't know quite yet word for word, but it basically ha is one section and in legislation and the it's sort of so it says section one and then the idea is it's split into two subsections the first is saying parliament is empowering the prime minister so, so the prime minister may trigger article 50 so it's, it's basically a standard empowerment provision and then the second one is to say this takes um, effect despite any other pieces of eu law treaties or legislation so it's, it's basically saying look we're giving you this power and this is all you need to satisfy our constitutional requirements to go into Article 50. So it's very, very short. In the explanatory notes to the bill, the government has said that it's going to use fast-track legislative process. And there's been a suggestion that this can all be done in five days. So you also have to read it against the context of two separate uh, resolutions of the House of Commons. Um, one of which was in October and one of which was in December, both of which conclude that they will represent the wishes of the people as set out in the referendum outcome and also which say that they recognise the timetable of trying to trigger this by the end of March. So the reality is it's highly unlikely this will delay, but there could be the possibility through that process of members of either the House of Commons or the House of Lords proposing amendments to this very short piece of legislation. And whether they're successful or not will depend on basically the balance of power in the House of Commons. Okay, how much of the decision, if any of it, hinged on a question of rights and what would happen to certain rights after triggering Article 50? Okay, it was a, a kind of smaller role in the decision. So the main legal principle the court applied was that you can't use a prerogative power to alter domestic law. And then they went away and looked at the circumstances, looked at what it meant to be part of the European Union and the constitutional significance of that, and basically said, look, you can't use this prerogative power because that would alter domestic law. They also said another justification for, for the conclusion they're reaching is you can't use prerogative powers to remove and alter rights. And there was a discussion of the different types of rights that come through European Union law and a recognition and a concession that had been reached by both sides that some of those rights would be altered by leaving the European Union. So it was a kind of like recognition that that alteration would be there and seeing it as a second justification for reaching the conclusion that they did. Um, in terms of long-term consequences, one interesting thing in the judgment is they recognise that it's not just about the, the content of the rights that you find in European Union law, but also about their kind of status in a sense and how they work. So they recognise that as a member of the European Union, where we listen to decisions of the European Court of Justice and interpretations that come through from the European Court of Justice are binding on us. They also recognise that European Union law has this kind of fundamental status. So because it has this fundamental status, you can't legislate, you, know, you can't sort of legislate to accidentally remove European Union law rights that you find in European Union law. So that recognition kind of draws awareness to some of the impact of withdrawing from the European Union, that that aspect of interpretation will go and that aspect of constitutional backdrop will go. So that then raises an important issue, I think, for MPs to be aware of. So they're aware of the con potential consequences so they can take a step back and think about, well, are there some rights that 
we have from Europe at the moment that we don't want to be removed accidentally? And if so, how do we protect them from future possible incidental erosion? So at the end of the day, is this decision good news for people concerned about human rights in the UK after Brexit? Ooh. <laughs> um, in a lot of ways, it doesn't really touch on human rights per se. I mean, it's um, yes, the EU is a source of rights and it's a source of large amounts of social and economic rights, particularly equality rights, uh, workers' rights. You know, they're there, but in terms of fundamental human rights, they're mostly coming from the European Convention of Human Rights and will remain a member of the European Convention of Human Rights, even though we're not a member of the European Union at the end of the whole you know, withdrawal and negotiation process. So in that sense, it, it doesn't really touch on it. What is good news in a sense is the awareness of the way in which the majority approached the decision. It was kind of looking at it and saying, it's almost like saying, because there are these rights and because there are all these things that are important that come in from Europe into the UK, then we shouldn't really be looking at it in a very overly technical sense. They, they make a reference in the judgment to kind of looking at it in a sense of, you know, the more fundamental or realistic interpretation of what's going on. It's as if they're saying, well, the reality is we've had all these rights come through and these are important. So really it needs Parliament to get rid of them rather than thinking in a kind of very technical and legal sense. So this kind of susceptibility to thinking more realistically about the impact of rights of individuals, I think is good news. And what does the way this decision has been framed tell us about the role of the courts? Um, I think it tells us two things. I think first, I think it tells us that the courts are very, very careful about trying to distinguish between law and politics. And you can see that from the fact that all 11 wanted to make it very clear that we are just looking at who has the power. We're just looking at sources of constitutional law and applying them to the reality of the situation in front of us. I think the second thing it's telling us about the role of courts and parliament is illustrated by the kind of distinction between the majority and the minority. So we're back to the evil pipes and removing pipes and switching taps on and off and all these silly analogies that we try and use to try and explain what's going on. But I think it's, it's back to that point I said about the kind of, are we looking at this by taking a step back from constitutional principles and saying, we look at constitutional principles, we enforce parliamentary sovereignty, but we look at the reality of what we think is, is happening in a sense, because it's so constitutionally important and has such further ramifications. We want to kind of look at it and say, you know, the reality is we've created a new source and that's why we need parliamentary authority. Or the minority, they're being more kind of technical and precise. And I think it's showing an emerging awareness in the UK constitution about trying to think about hierarchies of laws, trying to think about hierarchies of principles and trying to think about things in constitutional terms and using long-standing constitutional principles. And the courts are sort of moving into an acceptance of constitutional adjudication, whilst at the same time making it clear that's against a backdrop of the sovereignty of Parliament. What's your overall evaluation of the judgment? Was it what you expected? In some ways, it's, it's a judgment that is quite clear, it's quite um, expected in some senses, in that um, it has given a clear consensus as to what the relationship is between prerogatives and legislation, 
And so, so in a lot of senses, it, it's, it's, it's kind of very vanilla. It's not as exciting as it might have been. A lot of what you find here is quite normal, quite standard. And really what the disagreement is about is how we then apply it to this particular, very specific prerogative exercise of withdrawing from the European Union. So it's very quite narrow, quite standard in some senses. So in some ways, it's almost like they've kind of dulled it down a bit, tried not to be too radical in, in the decision that they've reached. And it's, it's quite a kind of standard decision. So we, we spent a lot of time saying, oh, this could this will be on, on everyone's syllabus and it will be. But in a lot of senses, it'd be on everyone's syllabus to confirm a lot of what we already knew. I think it's real thing for me has been in really bringing to the eyes of, of everybody just how our constitution works. And it's been really fascinating for me to see how this has generated so much interest, not just from sad academics like me, but also from the public here and globally. And I think it's just been a really good window into how what is quite a unique constitutional setup actually works in practice. And for me, that's been the most important aspect of the judgment. Well, thank you, Alison, for coming back and spending a little bit more time with me to talk about this case and Brexit. Rights Up Right Now is a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. Subscribe or follow us on iTunes, the Oxford Podcasting Service, or SoundCloud. <laughs>